Welcome to the PCTR Podcast. I'm Robbie Itterberg, Senior Pastor. I want to thank you for listening today. We hope that you hear from God and that this podcast encourages you in your faith journey. You can connect with us on social at facebook.com slash PCTRNJ or our Instagram handle, PCTRNJ. Or you can find more information or resources at PCTR.org. Have a great day. Peace. Well, we are coming down to the last two weeks in our sermon series that we've been in for throughout this Lenten season and a little beyond, a series that we're calling Unstuck. And the premise with this series is that all of us get stuck at different times. We get stuck partially or maybe even frequently because our emotional processes, the things we feel that are going on inside of us, often unexamined, are disconnected from our spirituality and our spiritual life. That our practice of faith doesn't always impact the reality of our emotional experience. And so in this series, we're seeking to reintegrate those And to invite Jesus to give us that courage to go deeper so that he can move in those deep places of anger or hurt or grief or sadness or despair or darkness and help us get unstuck. So I'd encourage you, if you've missed any of our previous messages, you can go back and listen to those on wherever you get podcasts or on our YouTube channel, PCTRNJ. But this morning, I want to begin with a story that brings together a number of the themes that we have been discussing in this series. It goes back to 2007, 2008. And at that time, our lives were really full, even though we only had one child. Wesley was two and became three in that year. Abby was working full-time nights at the Children's Hospital in Austin, Texas. I was working as director of college and young adult ministries at a church. In the course of that year, Abby became pregnant with Ella. And did I mention she was working nights? That continued. She also carried Ella through those hot summer Texas days where it was regularly 100 degrees and more. So that was a delight as well. (laughs) Ella arrived at the end of July, and about a month later, I was asked to take on the youth ministry of our church as well, which at that time had a couple of hundred students, six staff members, and I said yes and even felt called to it, but realized very quickly I had gotten in over my head that there was conflict on the youth staff. I was being asked to do more and more and more and didn't ever say no. I was working a ton, had no boundaries, kept saying yes. I was oblivious to what was going on inside of me, how stressed I was, how fried I was feeling. I was totally oblivious to Abby and the reality of now having two children, one of whom was refusing to be potty trained, a lot like his father. (laughs) The other, a totally dependent infant, And I remember the day that it all came to a head. We were having a conversation, conversation, in the front yard. And I don't remember any of the words of this conversation except for my words when I finally blurted out, what do you want from me? And as the words came out of my mouth, I knew that there was something wrong. And it was with me. That my emotionality and my spirituality were totally disconnected. 
I was not in tune with what was going on inside of me and my emotional processes. I was certainly not grabbing on to the beautiful invitation of rest and rhythms and embracing my limits and boundaries, not practicing good communication and working that out in my marriage. I was emotionally immature and not loving her well. See, part of the invitation of this Unstuck series is, yes, to know and care for ourselves well, but it's also so that we can love others well. And we can't do that as long as we remain emotionally immature. And so we're going to jump into that today through James chapter 1, and I'll invite you to follow along on the screen if you'd like. Let's listen for God's word, and let's set our intention to follow and to do what it says. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Heavenly Father, will you add your blessing to the reading of your word, the hearing of your word, and the doing of your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One thing I love about James is that his letter is so practical. It's about how to live out the Christian faith. He's not interested in pretending or playing at the faith. He's interested in doing it in living it. And so in this section that we read this morning, right at the beginning, he says, hey, everybody take note. Everyone. That meant everyone. In other words, he's about to say, hey, the problem that we're talking about is not just isolated to a few. This is a matter of everyone needs to, to listen. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why does James have to tell them that? Yeah, I, we, we know instinctively why he has to tell them that. Because they're not living that way. And actually, that this word James wrote then is just as relevant now as it ever has been. Because we live in a world that is slow to listen, quick to speak, and fast to become angry. And social media has only added gasoline to the fire. Now, don't get me wrong. Social media did not create this problem. It was there to begin. The human heart has created this problem. But we didn't have these tools 20 years ago to put people on blast the way we do now. 
And so James is writing to an emotionally immature people, to us, people who are emotionally reactive. See, James's letter, as you look at it broadly, seems to really focus in on helping the church love the church well, those who are closest to them in their community. And it's interesting that he has to give this command when his aim is to help them love one another well. It would be like we might understand this if he's saying, hey, be patient with those people on the outside who are always attacking you. But he's really talking about their interpersonal relationships. And isn't this the truth for us? I wonder, are you better at being patient with people outside of your house than in it? And when we think about it, you probably haven't been treated as badly or treated others as badly as you have those in your family and your closest friendships. And I just want to acknowledge part of that is actually normal and makes sense and is even good. Because family and those close friends are a safe space where, like we talked about earlier in this series, we can take the masks down, we can let the guard down, and we can be just really truly who we are, and there's a safety in that. And so that's good. But at the same time, we also find ourselves spending so much time with this same group of people that they know how to push our buttons, we know how to push theirs, and so we can develop these patterns in the relationship of emotional reactivity. And emotional reactivity is really simply this. In a tense moment, you lose control of your emotions. And we know that when we lose control of our emotions, we also tend to lose control of our actions, don't we? And so this reactivity takes a lot of different forms, We we think of losing control of our tongue. This is what James directly speaks about in our passage when in verse 26 he says, hey, if you consider yourself religious and yet don't keep a rein on your tongue, you deceive yourself and your religion is worthless. And we see this pattern because this is when the yelling starts and the name calling begins and the things are said that we wake up the next day and we go, oh, I didn't really mean that. Well, why did we say it in the first place? Well, maybe because we actually did mean some of it. And we can also be emotionally reactive, but look really calm on the outside, right? We begin to rationalize our behavior as a way to defend ourselves, to shift the blame and responsibility for our feelings or our actions to somebody else, and in our calmness, even claim the high ground, the high road, feeling quite self-righteous about our calmness. But the reality is we're emotionally disengaged reacting just as if we were yelling. It can take the form, emotionally reactivity can take the form of just cold withdrawal. And that may not think of that as emotionally reactive, but it is because in that moment you react to whatever the the tense situation is like a turtle kind of climbing totally inside of its shell so that nobody can get at you. I'm physically maybe in the room, but emotionally took off. The reactivity can take the form of slamming doors and throwing things, caustic sarcasm, or just simply bursting into tears when you're not even sad. It's however we lose control of our emotions in those tense moments. And when that happens, we're no longer loving well. We're likely 
living out of and loving the way we observed in our past, as we talked about earlier in this series. And we do this especially with those who are close to us, but it's not the way that we want to love, is it? So why do we do it? We, we see it. We see the patterns in our relationships. So why do we do it? Peter Stunke is a pastor and a leadership consultant and a therapist, and he says it's because of our lizard brain. You know that term? Lizard brain. He, he gets at it like this. He says, the life of a lizard is simple. Right? Lounging on a log, the lizard's tongue flicks at a crawling insect. The insect is gone. The lizard doesn't pause to think about, is it lunchtime yet? Right? There's no question about whether the insect is clean enough to devour or you know, whether they should count their carbs or their calories. They don't put a little salt on it or dip it in cocktail sauce. Right? They just eat it. For the lizard has nothing to decide, nothing to remember, nothing to learn, nothing to be anxious about, nothing to prepare for. Instinct handles it all. And then he goes on and says, many times, humans function at the instinctual level of a lizard. Especially in those tense moments. We just react instinctively, and when we react instinctively, so often the part of our brain that is a God-given gift to see and respond to threats, right, to protect ourselves, that part of our brain kicks on. And in those tense moments, it kicks on and it begins to fire because we feel threatened, we feel vulnerable, we feel exposed, and maybe we're exposed by the stress or the guilt or the anger or the disappointment or the judgment or the hurt or the, just this plain fear. And so because we feel threatened, our well-being, our safety, our wholeness, we try to protect ourselves. And so the lizard brain kicks in, we react in whatever way we think will most quickly protect ourselves, and in the process, end up hurting our relationships. Yeah, now you can know why. Okay, it's the lizard brain. Great. So what do we do about it? How easy do we think it is to change? Can we just turn the lizard brain off? I mean, it's not quite that easy. I mean, it is a God-given gift, and it is deep within us. <clears throat> But James does give us a path to begin to change where we can no longer have to be quite as emotionally reactive and can love well. He says it this way in verse 21. He says, humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Now, Peter Scazzaro, who has written the book Emotionally Healthy Spirituality that some of us have been reading along with this series, he says that this shift right here is just as significant as the Copernican shift was for humanity. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say the Copernican shift? Copernicus was the one that realized that the sun is actually the center of the solar system, not the earth, that we orbit around the sun rather than the sun orbiting around us, and that changed everything. And Scazzaro says that this shift for us to love well, to get out of our lizard brain, is the shift that says, I am no longer the center of the universe. And it's just as drastic, if not more so, than the Copernican shift. Because it's hard to do. 
It's incredibly hard to do. Because we naturally live as if this is true. We wake up in the morning and we're only really conscious of ourselves, of our thoughts, of our desires, of our goals, of our to-do lists, of our longings. If we don't take care of ourselves, who will? And we reinforce it with messages throughout our society that you can be and do anything you want to be and you can do anything you want to do. And if it makes you happy, go ahead and do it. Yes, your world revolves around you. But to love well, we have to stop being the center of the universe. And this is humility. And James says it isn't just about being humble. He says it's about humbly accepting the word planted in you that can save you. Now this is different than the many approaches to humility that we find in the world today. See, because there's a a number of approaches to humility. There's a very utilitarian approach to humility. This is the approach that says, okay, I will humble, humble myself. I'll consider others' needs ahead of my own. I'll serve them as long as it makes life and my relationships work. Right? I'm willing to not be the center some of the time. As a matter of fact, secretly, I really am the center. But I'm trying to make it look like I'm not because this is what makes my relationships work. And so it's not really about humbly loving and serving the other for the sake of the other. It's really about putting me back at the center, but in a really sneaky sort of way. Or maybe you can just reject humility altogether, because the truth is humility is not a high value in our society today. It seems like those who are being lifted up as heroes, those who are being pushed into positions of power, of prominence, and fame, are those who have the greatest hubris, who are willing to project themselves as larger than life, who are willing to be crass and perhaps even unnecessarily offensive, justifying it in the name of this is what it takes to be strong today. And so rejecting humility altogether. Others kind of swing to the other end of the spectrum, assuming a posture of humility in relationships where they become a doormat, where Really, they're just getting taken advantage of, they're being used, and even voluntarily being used. And it kind of looks like humility, it looks like service, but the reality is it's not a gift being freely given and offered to the other. It comes out of a place of insecurity and a sense of worthlessness, of self. It's humiliation, not humility. Because humility doesn't say, I have no worth, it just says, I'm not the center of the universe. There's also a very religious sort of humility that's very common, where we serve a lot of people, we do things for others, but rather than it really being about the other, it still is about me, because it feels so good to serve, and it makes me feel like a good person, makes me feel like, like great when other people recognize how humble I am, it makes me feel great that I can show God how I am so obedient and so humble, and that's... That's really not humility and it's not really loving others well. It's actually using other people so that I can feel good about me. And, and it's also kind of like patting ourselves on the back for how humble we are. Right, there's a, a Peanuts comic strip, you know, Charlie Brown and Snoopy comic strip. There's one where Charlie Brown and Linus are sitting around and they're talking about their future when they grow up. And Linus says to Charlie Brown, when I get big... I'm going to be a humble little country doctor. I'll live in the city, see, and every morning I'll get up, climb into my sports car, and zoom into the country. Then I'll start healing people. 
I'll heal everybody for miles around. And then he concludes his little speech with, I'll be a world-famous, humble little country doctor. Right? And in the name of Jesus, we can strive to be a world-famous, humble servant. Because we're really trying to build our reputation, even if only in our own eyes, and that's not loving others well. That's loving myself. But there is a humility that James is talking about that is different, that comes from the gospel, that comes from, he says, looking into the perfect law that gives freedom and then continuing to do it. What is he talking about? The perfect law that gives freedom. Well, the perfect law ultimately is really about Jesus. Jesus is the embodiment of the perfect law. In Jesus, all of the righteousness of God, the character of God, the holiness of God, the fullness of God is on display. And in Jesus, you see the perfect righteous human life. If you want to know what life's supposed to look like, look at Jesus. He lived it. He lived it perfectly. He lived it beautifully. And though he deserved reward and honor and glory, he chose disgrace, dishonor, and the death of a sinner for you and for me and for the world. See, this is the gospel. And what the gospel, the gospel tells us something really important about ourselves. Actually, two things. The first thing that it tells us that's really important is that you're a sinner. You're welcome. Yeah, but because it, it reminds us that apart from what Jesus has done for us, we are completely condemned. We do not deserve blessing. We do not deserve a relationship with God. We are not fundamentally good. No, we are fundamentally self-centered, striving to make ourselves the center of the universe, striving ultimately really to be God in our lives. That's what sin really is about. And the gospel reminds us that we are sinners and it's so important because it lays and gives a clear basis for humility. Because here's the truth. God doesn't love me because I'm worthy. God doesn't love me because I'm good. God doesn't love me because I'm humble. God doesn't love me because of anything I have done. God loves me because Jesus took my ugly. Jesus took my self-centeredness. Jesus took my self-righteousness and bore it to the full force of the brutality of the cross. That's why God loves me. And when I realized this, that the only reason God loves me is because Jesus died in my place, how can I ever look at anyone else anywhere and think, I'm better than that one? Yep, I'm better than they are. The reality is Christians should be the most humble people on the planet. And that should be because, like, we work really hard at it. Like, it's a rule that we have to follow and pretend, so we pretend and deceive ourselves that we've achieved humility. No, but because we realize to the depth and the core of who we are, our helplessness and our despair apart from what Jesus has done. So I can say to no other person, I, I'm better than they are. Because Jesus had to die for me. Jesus had to die for them too. We're equal. And see, this is, this is part of what the gospel says. It says that I'm a sinner. 
But that's only half of it. The other thing the gospel tells us and tells you is that you are loved. That God takes joy and delight in you. That God doesn't see your failure, your self-centeredness, and your sin. No, he sees a beloved, precious child that he has chosen and said, that one's mine. I love you. I choose to be in a relationship with you. And this changes our relationships with others in our life because I can love you right where you are because that's what God did for me. I don't have to change you. I don't have to fix you. I don't have to use you to self-validate. I don't have to make myself feel better because of serving you. I can serve you right where you are with no agenda because I don't need anything from you. Because I am loved Beyond anything I ever possibly deserve, God of the universe served me and sacrificed for me and loves me. So I can love you like that. See, you can love the people in your house like that. You can love those in your circles of relationship and friendship. You can even love those who have turned on you like that. Because the gospel transforms how we start to see the people around us and we can see them not as the enemy, not as the threat that we have to protect ourselves from. But the one that God loves, the way he loves us. So we are humbled at the foot of the cross, but we are also raised up, given value and worth beyond what we can imagine, which also means then you are worth standing up for. (laughs) It means you don't, in humiliation, allow yourself to simply be walked on. You don't just sweep the reality of sin and brokenness under the rug. Instead, you speak. James said be slow to speak. He doesn't say don't speak. Those are very different commands. As a matter of fact, not speaking is often a sign more of emotional reactivity and withholding and withdrawing and self-preservation. James is saying be slow to speak. Don't be emotionally reactive. Be grounded in the reality of the gospel. Examine what's going on inside. Be aware, is what's rising up in me because of what has happened to me? Or is it really because of my stuff? Is what I want to do next coming out of my desire to simply protect myself? Or can I remember because of the gospel that I don't have to protect myself reactively, but that it is God who protects me, who cares for me, who values me? And then having examined our emotions, we can speak truthfully, but we can do it gently. We can do it patiently. We can speak lovingly. We can seek reconciliation, not protection. See, that's what it looks like to begin to love well. Not loving to put on a mask to say, oh yeah, it's all good all the while having bitterness growing inside of us, but instead from the place of the gospel and humility, we can speak and love well. Emotional maturity will come in our lives as we pour, peer more deeply into the reality of the gospel, into the depth of our sinfulness, but to the heights of our worth and our value because of what Jesus has done. It will change us from the inside. It will change how we see ourselves, how we see others around us. It will cultivate humility. It will raise up our true worth and value so we won't have to be emotionally reactive any longer but resting in the love of God who gave his son for you, then you can become a force of loving transformation. And you can love well as you have been loved at home, in school, at work, wherever you go. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, when we start looking into our relationships, we, we honestly see patterns of stuckness, reactivity. And Lord, we've tried at different times to change ourselves and to push ourselves toward humility or reject humility to protect ourselves. Lord, help us see more clearly the truth of the gospel. May we be humbled by our sinfulness, humbled by your willingness to step into our place on that cross. May we also be awed and wondered and transformed by the reality of how loved we are, valued by you, so that we may be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry, but that we also may speak truthfully, may speak in a way that will love well as we have been loved. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.